Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, I want to mention that we do have a merch store. There's a lot of great stuff on there, so if you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can go on Etsy and look us up at Terrible True Crime. The last thing is it really helps when you rate the show and leave a review or a comment wherever you listen. Alright, let's get into some updates. So I feel comfortable saying this because this episode, when you guys hear this, this will have been in the past, but I've been home alone most of the weekend and you know juggling taking care of the puppy and just life in general and on Saturday morning I wake up really early it's like 7 30 I like to sleep in and this is usually not my job but puppy needs to go pee and the cat needs to be fed Ollie our puppy is so lazy like he's like a teenager you have to drag him out of bed so I wake up I open his cage he like takes a few steps out and I pick him up because I'm like I don't have any time to waste right now keep in mind he's like 36 pounds now but I'm carrying him in my arms walking down the steps half asleep in pajamas and I get to we live in like a a two-story house so I get to the kind of main floor level I have one step left before I'm on the main floor And as I'm putting my foot down, I hear my cat scream. (gasps) So I didn't put, like, all my weight on her. Like, she's fine. But I'm, like, I, like, half step on the cat, this 30-pound dog in my arms. And then I kind of, like, just, like, leap forward so that I don't squish my cat and then drop my dog. I fully just, like, fall on the ground and, like, (laughs) hold Ollie up. He never even hit the ground. The cat is hissing. The dog's like half asleep. Like, what just happened? And I'm just like, oh my God. (laughs) I would cry if that happened to me just because that's like, there's so much going on. You're trying to do everything. And then obviously something has to go wrong. It was like 7.30 on a Saturday. Like, this is the last (laughs) thing I want to be doing right now. And the cat is like totally only blaming the dog. She's like going up to him and his face. And I'm like, you need to back up. (laughs) Oh my God. It's been, I feel like it's been total chaos. And to top that all off, I think I'm broken. I cannot get over the Colonel Williams case. Maybe it's because I've been on my own, which I'm not often, but I'm like checking every single corner of my house and stacking furniture in front of my bedroom door. And that's not like Renee. Like that's like something I would do on a regular basis, but I've never known you to be like that. No, ever. That case broke me, I think. I don't know. Something about him being in your house without you knowing. Mm And then yesterday, my dog was, like, staring into space and just started barking. And I was like, nope, nope. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this oh right now. Yeah. I had to check the whole house. Bottom to top, top to bottom. I just, uh, that case is just sticking with me. But, yeah, I am paranoid. And, yeah, there, I guess there is such thing as too much true crime. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? But I've been listening to a lot of music, trying to, like, Good. throw some music in there and, you know, give my, my brain a break. But it's just, like, the going to bed. I'm just like, 
Yeah. Lock, make sure both doors are locked, make sure my bedroom door's locked, move dresser in front of bedroom <laughs> door, and then I'm like, okay, now I'm good. I can I peacefully go to sleep now. <laughs> Do Rosie and Ollie both sleep in your bedroom? So I've been kicking Rosie out because she'll try to like leave later on in the night oh. and I don't want to like wake up and let her out. Yeah. So just for now I've been kicking her out. And for whatever reason, Ollie's been starting this thing where he's crying again when he's in his crate. Aww. which is just I don't know I think he's just like pushing his limits or mm-hmm. like trying to see what he can get away with yeah but I I have zero patience it's just me I'm tired the weekends I let him like fall asleep in bed and then I bring him to the crate the weekdays yeah. I am just like he cries once I put his crate in the guest room put him in the crate <laughs> close the guest room door and go to bed <laughs> I just can't do it for like an hour and yeah. I get up so early in the morning I'm just I, I and it's like <laughs> I'm like it's just sad hearing that too. I know I'm like you're cute but you're also stressing me out because I think something is like wrong with you yeah. meanwhile I have several times like taken him out to go do his business given him water tried to feed him he doesn't want anything he just wants to not be in his cage <laughs> and I'm like no you're not playing me like this I need to go to bed and the other thing that I wanted to update you guys on is I don't exactly remember what episode I mentioned this, but for my Calgary people, there was a man who murdered his mom in Airdrie, and that happened back in January. And I talked about it, and we kind of speculated that it might have been some kind of like mental break or something because it was really strange. People that knew him were like pretty shocked that this had happened. There had been kind of no signs. Anyway, the latest update on that is that he is pursuing a not criminally responsible defense Mm. it seems like it kind of fits the situation from the information that i've heard but interesting like i don't know how often those defenses work work or you know i think mostly you know you're still kind of institutionalized i think in some kind of facility where you can get care and help so i'd be interested to see like what happens with the with the trial and you know it's one thing to be you know in a mental state where you do things that you know you're not necessarily wanting to do but you're still not safe to society if you're out and about unless you get some sort of help so if he is granted that that he does get help yeah, definitely. Especially if like it wasn't something that he meant to do. Mm-hmm. Like, could you imagine like just like yeah. losing it for a second and then accidentally killing someone you love? Like, and then yeah, exactly. Them. And then the trauma from doing that. If you, yeah. Like, oh, can't imagine. Yeah. Anyway, I'll keep you guys updated. I still want to do kind of a, a weekly or a biweekly current news update with you guys related to Canadian true crime, but we'll we'll figure that out when we find the time and. <laughs> Maybe once we keep growing and we have more demand for it. But every time I see like a news article or something, I'm like, oh my God, I want to share this in the podcast. But Mm -hmm. with what time frame also (laughs) for our episodes. So eventually we'll do bonus episodes. But yeah, that's pretty much it for me. I was on YouTube this past week. And I was suggested a video that made me fall in love with a new YouTube channel that's like interrogation, true crime, because we know, I don't remember which episode I talked about this either, but it was when I said that JCS criminal psychology YouTube channel was kind of done. They, you know, were getting their videos taken down by YouTube. They weren't getting any money from it. They had lots of, lots of subscribers and views, but they just couldn't keep going. So this is kind of like a very similar vibe and it's really good. So if you guys are interested in watching true crime on YouTube, 
It's called Explore With Us. They have almost 2.5 million subscribers and they upload pretty frequently. My favorite one so far has been the Amazon Review Killer. So if you're curious, take I don't a peek. know that one. It's not Canadian. I know, but I feel like I usually am like, oh yeah, that one. It's crazy stuff on there. But it's just, I just find it so fascinating when you get to see firsthand, like the evil person that could do these kinds of things. You know, you see them talk, you see them the way they act. It's just creepy, but it's interesting. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah. It's funny because we, we did a poll today, not today for you guys, but today for us about who watches on YouTube or who listens on podcasts. And I put like team Renee on podcast and team Mahi on YouTube. And I'm currently winning, which I'm really excited about, even though it's not a competition. <laughs> Because I feel like we we get a lot of feedback from YouTube, or at least more from like the audio apps. It was kind of exciting to see that some people are actually listening to us on the podcast apps as well. And if you guys enjoy the show, you have a favorite episode, please just share it on your story or something that really helps kind of reach other people. And yeah, we really appreciate when people do that. Sources for the case this week are a global news article by Nancy Hickst, a CBC article by Megan Grant, and then a CTV news article. I also watched an episode of Crime Beat. It was episode 15, season 2, and it's called The Day Ryan Lane Vanished. This case was recommended to us by Megan Refik, so thank you for the recommendation and we hope you like the episode. Thank you, Megan. Our case this week takes place in and around Calgary, Alberta. In 2012, Ryan Lane is a 24-year-old man. He is described by his mom as shy and introverted. He loved gaming. He was the middle child, and he grew up in Calgary and in Cochrane. He played the piano and the bongo drums. He loved music, mostly techno rock and classic rock. At this time, he was living with his dad. His parents had separated when he was younger. In 2012, Ryan has a four-year-old daughter, and his daughter's mother is a woman named Sheena Cuthill. Ryan and Sheena had met when Ryan was 18 and Sheena was 20. Ryan's mom, Lorraine, is interviewed in the Crime Beat episode, and she says that he was infatuated with Sheena. He did anything and everything for her. His mom says he was totally in love. The couple moved to Airdrie together, and that's when they found out that they were pregnant. It's reported that both of them were really excited about the pregnancy. They shared pictures on social media and updated friends and family. So far, this sounds very sweet. They are a little young, but, you know, they're super excited to have a baby. They're two adults living together. It seems like they're doing well at this point. He's way hotter than her. A year after the couple met, they had a baby. Their baby girl's name is is widely known. You can find it in a few seconds, but it's also not really relevant to the case, and she is out there living her life, so I'm just going to call her baby girl. Unfortunately, the couple did go through a pretty difficult breakup about a year and a half after baby girl was born. It seems like Sheena made this decision for the both of them, and it was partly based, I guess, on the fact that Ryan didn't really have it all together. He worked odd jobs and he hadn't really decided what he wanted to do with his life yet this is tough for me because i kind of get her maybe wanting to kind of kick him in the butt and be like you have a daughter now and family like you need to but he's also you know. 24 no he's oh just 18 19 at this point oh, oh oh okay yeah so he's young at this point like it's not surprising that he doesn't have it all figured out she's two years older than him yeah you know, girls mature a lot <laughs> faster than boys do generally so i feel like 
it's tough. Maybe this is a conversation they had been having for a while now and nothing had really changed, but it is reported like it was mostly Sheena's decision. So naturally, a custody battle kind of began between the both of them. You know, when you're a couple and you have a child together and then you separate, it's just not as easy as just a a kind of regular old breakup. You have a lot to consider. I'm not sure if at this point it was legal or not. I don't think it was. Um, Ryan's mom does kind of mention that he was having a hard time seeing their baby girl. They would make plans and Sheena would often kind of ghost him and not answer, pretend she was home and then actually wasn't. So Ryan would, you know, go to their home to see her and he wouldn't be able to. Ryan's mom also said that he would make money, obviously he was still working these odd jobs, and he would deposit the money directly into Sheena's bank account so she could take care of their baby girl. Soon after the breakup, Sheena basically drops off the face of the earth, and she took her baby with her. I don't agree with this. I understand, well, no, I don't understand. I don't understand how difficult custody battles could be, and I don't even want to think of the fact that you could have had a child with your last boyfriend or the person you were with before, and then you would kind of actively have to be in their lives trying to manage the relationship and parenting. It's for sure, I can't imagine that it's easy, but that's that person's child as well, right? So just kind of disappearing. She disappears from social media and changes her phone number. I feel like unless there's like some sort of abuse going on, the safety of the child, the safety of the mom, like if it's just because the parents aren't getting along, like that's not a reason for a child to not see their, their parent. Exactly. And as far as we know, there was no reports of abuse or any, you know, anyone scared for their safety. At this point, it just seems like you know, Sheena is done compromising or, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to involve Ryan in their daughter's life. So she was done. She just ghosts him, leaves social media and changes her phone number. Two entire years go by before Ryan would hear from Sheena and his daughter again. This is a long time. Ryan's mom said that he, you know, was really depressed about it all and he wanted to be a part of his daughter's life. I'm not sure at this point what kind of efforts were made to try and locate Sheena. Like, I know if it was me, I'd hire a private investigator or something. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, at this point, what do you do? You're kind of, you're kind of stuck. But at the same time, he does actively want to be in her life. So very messy and very complicated. When he does hear back from Sheena, it's in October of 2011 and she had filed for custody. So Ryan had actually gotten a letter in the mail that was a notice of court. It turns out that Sheena had married a man named Tim Rempel, and she was pregnant. So I think her goal at this point is most likely, you know, for her and her new hubby to move on with their lives and kind of legally or officially cut Ryan out of it. Sheena was probably expecting Ryan to just cave and give her full custody. Like I mentioned, Ryan wanted to be a part of his daughter's life, so this kind of gave him an end to this right like now he's like okay like we're going to court i kind of have an idea of where she is and i'm gonna be able to see my daughter in november of 2011 they had their first court date the court suggested mediation and supervised visits on february 6th of 2012 they planned their first visit ryan's family said that he was really looking forward to finally seeing his daughter he had planned to take her to chuck e cheese around 1 p.m that day Throw back to Chuck E. Cheese. That I was know. so fun. I only ever went once and it was when we were in the States on vacation. Like, did we have one? No, I think it was mostly the States. Yes. So yeah. they must have had one in Calgary at some point. Now I know that they have one in Toronto. Yeah, this is obviously a nice choice. He clearly wanted his daughter to have fun. I mean, at this point, like, he missed like two huge years of her life. Like she, she was you know, an infant. So um, he's having to 
re-get to know her and she's having to re-get to know him, which is so sad. Yeah, he literally is introducing himself to her. She probably doesn't even know who he is realistically. Ryan had even bought his daughter a couple things and it seemed like they really had a good time. Ryan took pictures of his girl wearing his hat and having fun at Chuck E. Cheese. Aww. I know, Matthew's looking at a picture. After their visit, it seemed like Ryan was such a proud dad. He posted pictures from their day together. He talked to his dad about it and he Skyped with a friend, telling that friend all about his day. Everything seemed so positive. Oh my god, my heart. He told his friend that one of the pictures he took would be a new screensaver for his phone. So sweet. It's during this call with his friend. I think he's also kind of gaming at the same time, like kind of a little gaming and Skyping kind of thing, that he gets a phone call on his cell phone. This call is from an unknown caller. So he picks it up, he answers, and he kind of abruptly finishes what he's doing and ends the Skype call. Around midnight, Ryan tells his dad that he's heading out. He had apparently received a call from a mystery person offering him help with custody. So someone had basically called Ryan and been like, I have some helpful information for your custody battle. So if you meet me, but you have to come alone, so I like- can help you. You think he thinks it's, like, dirt on her? I don't know what he thinks at this point. Because I've, like, never been through anything even similar to that. So (laughs) I really don't know what he could have thought it could have been or it would have been. But at the same time, he seemed, you know, so desperate to be in his daughter's life. Like, he was obviously so in love with her and loved being her dad that he was willing to do anything. But Ryan's dad is like, um, this is suspicious. Like, I do not want you going. Like, you have no idea who you're meeting. I have no idea who you're meeting. But Ryan insisted on going alone. So Bruce, who is Ryan's dad, followed him just in case, which is... He's such a a good dad. Like, even though his son is 24 years old at this point, he is just like, this seems weird. I don't care what time of night it is. I'm following you. And I feel like Ryan is so blinded by the fact that all he sees is, I just want my daughter. If this can help me get my daughter back, I'll do whatever. So he doesn't even think twice, you know, which obviously is his first instinct. But I'm happy the dad was there to have his back. Yeah, me too. I'm sure I meant a lot to Ryan. So both of them head out the door. Around 1 a.m., the Calgary police get a 911 call. It's Bruce. He's panicking, I'm sure, as he tells the 911 operator that his son has been kidnapped. Ryan pulled into a strip mall type place, and he got into an old red GMC pickup truck with a load of wood in the back. Bruce lost track of the truck after Ryan got in. He tried to call him, but there was no answer. This is when he decided to call 911. Police meet Bruce at his house and talk to him. They ask him about the events that led up to the kidnapping. And Bruce tells them about Ryan's day, his visit with his daughter, and then the weird phone call that he got. He then tells him that he followed Ryan and noticed him get into the truck, but he didn't recognize the man driving it. Ryan was wearing a black jacket and a white baseball cap. The next morning, Bruce called Lorraine to let her know that her son was missing. She says that she immediately thought who would kidnap him and then keep him alive. She already thought that there's a good chance that he might be dead, which is is so sad. These parents talked a lot in, this was a big case in the Calgary area and the parents did a lot of press conferences. His dad can barely keep it together. It is the saddest, one of the saddest things I've ever watched. And, you know, his mom is out there just being a warrior, you know, putting a brave face on. And she's talking and thanking people for their help and their support. And I just think, like, the instinct of being like, oh, my God, my son's missing. Wait, he's been kidnapped? This is not good. Like, immediately being like, this is, like, for sure not a good sign. 
Obviously, being kidnapped is never good, but he's a 24-year-old man. Like, who kidnaps, like she said, who kidnaps 24-year-old man and keeps him alive? Well, that's the thing. Like, this whole thing is just, like, so strange. I feel like it all just happened so fast. I know we talk quick because we're a podcast and we kind of go for the details, but it really did happen this quick. They got reinstated back in their life, court date in November, February, their first day together. That day, he goes missing. So let's talk a bit about the investigation. Two days after Ryan was kidnapped, they do a media release. They ask anyone with any information about Ryan to contact the police. They mention the truck and they mention that he was last seen early Tuesday near Country Hills Boulevard in the northwest of Calgary. This was all really out of character for Ryan and obviously his dad saw him get into the truck and get taken so there's even more reason to panic kind of immediately. It's not just, you know, those other stories we've covered where it's like, oh, well maybe they just went missing on their own. No, Mm. like this was an obvious foul play involved situation. His parents spoke at the press conference appealing for help from the public or maybe even the captors and they thanked the public for their help and their involvement so far. Days go by and police couldn't find any evidence that Ryan was alive. He wasn't using his phone and he had not accessed his bank account. I mean, these are not good signs if you were going to go missing on your own. Like I, like I, I think like I always say, like you don't just drop off the base of the earth. You need money. You need to have access to a phone. Even if you're making a couple purchases, then ditching your things. There's going to be a history of that. At this point, this is not looking good. So the case gets passed on to the homicide unit. They release pictures of the red truck that they were able to get from surveillance cameras and are again asking the public for help. Obviously, the people involved in the kidnapping were aware of the custody battle. So, I mean, at this point, I'm sure they're thinking they must have known Ryan or known of Ryan, at Mm -hmm. least. They used something so personal to, like, lure him out. Yeah. And I don't know if they were thinking that there's no way he'll mention it to someone else that he's heading out for this and they thought that he would keep it to himself but he told not only his dad i think he also told the friend he was skyping with so this kind of narrows down the suspect pool to people that knew about ryan's personal life searches were conducted all over calgary ryan's parents were obviously very thankful and they participated and did their own searches as well investigators discovered that the mystery man on the phone had called from a payphone close to a gas station they review the footage at the gas station and they were able to see a red g Cherokee and a red GMC pickup truck. About 15 minutes before the phone call to Ryan came in, the red pickup truck and red Jeep Cherokee were seen driving into the parking lot. Both vehicles then leave around midnight and they both go in the same direction. It wasn't clear enough to see the drivers, but they could get a partial license plate from the video. The police were aware of the custody issues, obviously. They had been in contact with the family and had kind of gotten the background information on Ryan's life. Investigators then look into Sheena and the people around her because, again, it was someone who obviously knew about the custody battle, so if not an acquaintance of Ryan's, maybe an acquaintance of Sheena's. They soon find out that the red Jeep Cherokee is registered to none other than Sheena. And that the red GMC truck belongs to a member of the Rempel family. Her husband's family. Yes, exactly. So her husband's family. So, okay, this is super suspicious. But again, like, why? Yeah. What is the point of this? Like, I'm, like everyone's confused at this point. 
does she think that's literally her only way to get her child to herself? Like, there's just like just no can't. like linear thought to it. One plus one equals no. two. Like, it makes it's no just, sense. No, it makes no sense. Exactly. Investigators tracked down the red truck and turns out that it had been sold to a scrap metal yard just north of Calgary, just a couple days after Ryan's disappearance. This was a, a nice truck in good conditions. Like, there was no reason for it to be sold, really. It was sold for just $128. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like, there's there's no answer to why. But thank God criminals are bad at being criminals most of the time because yeah. it's stuff like this where it's – this is extremely suspicious, obviously. Yes. And it turns out that the scrapyard actually hadn't destroyed the truck, probably because they thought they could resell it for more money instead of kind of scrapping it. So – uh, when investigators kind of get a hold of it, they notice that the door on the side, so the passenger side door that Ryan entered through, could not be opened from the inside. So it had been fixed, maneuvered, or oh, it had been. Creepy. Yeah. Police put Tim and Sheena and Tim's brother, Will, under surveillance. I think this is because mostly, like, Tim's brother, Will, he had the most access to that red truck, from what I could understand, so I think that's why he was kind of pinpointed as well. They used cell phone data from the three of them to ping cell phone towers in the area. The detective interviewed in the Crime Beat episode says that this is one of the first times they actually used this in the city, so kind of using, like, cell phone data and cell phone towers to figure out where people were at the time. They are able to find out where Tim and Will's cell phones were that night. It points them to a large area east of Bicycle, a town north of Calgary. In this area, there were several gravel pits. Investigators obtain a search warrant to the suspect's home. At Will's house, they find a car wash receipt and a receipt for the salvage yard, so like the dump, the scrap metal place where they found the truck. They track down the car wash where the receipt was from and they look at surveillance video. On the evening of February 7th, hours after Bruce saw Ryan get into the truck, Will can be seen washing the outside and the inside of his truck with a pressure washer. I have never seen someone fully wash the inside with a full-on pressure because washer. Because it makes no sense. It would flood the inside yeah. of the truck. Like, it, it just makes absolutely no sense. And, like, that's what the detective, I think her name's Detective Witt. Yeah, so we just paused to look it up. It is Detective Christina Witt. And she seems really amazing. She's, like, has a, she's super educated. And she, anyway, the way she talks in, it's kind of nice to see a woman in that role. Because I feel like often it's a male detective. Um, but she played a huge role in this investigation. And, and she, like, really points out, she's like, I, who? Who, like, pressure washes the inside of their car? Yeah, unless you got something to hide. Yes, they're just, it's being super obvious, I feel like. And then, I don't know if they decided at this point, like, that wasn't going to help, but that wasn't going to work, but that's when they decided to bring it to the salvage yard, I guess, so, (laughs) I don't know. Like, they get rid of it anyway. (sighs) Meanwhile, the forensic team is going over the truck, because they, you know, had found it, and they realized that the handle was all jigged up weird, and they find blood, so they didn't even do a good job at pressure washing the inside of the truck. Well, you know, Renee, it's like you said in a previous episode, I'm not going to tell a criminal how to criminal, but this ain't it. Yeah, like you're not doing it right, but I'm glad Mm. you didn't do it right. Exactly. Sheena's Jeep was also looked at, and there was also blood in her Jeep near the foot pedals. The blood would end up coming back as a match to Ryan's. It also turns out that Tim and Sheena lived in Bicycle. It's not a large town, so I'm sure that they were well aware of all the searches happening. Finally, searchers brought in cadaver dogs. The pups searched the gravel pit, and they found a burn barrel. 
In the barrel, they find bones and some ashes. They were not able to get any DNA because the remains were badly burned. They also find a class ring that had Ryan's name on it. Again, we're not going to tell you how to do this, but this is not it. Oh, You're boy. leaving and identifying. Why take the time to burn the body? Uh, and, like, let's not skim over that this is, like, really horrible, like, to just, like, burn another human's body and shove it in a barrel. Or shove it in a barrel and then burn it. Like, it's... And, again, for what? yeah. Like, so unnecessary. And his poor daughter, at the end of the day, she's... Yeah, like, she uh, loses in this. Like, no one's yeah, winning right now. No. So, obviously, now their suspect pool is very small, as in three people. <laughs> so, <laughs> they are looking through their electronics and stuff and trying to get more information. I'm sure they had had several warrants at this point to search their places. And on Will's computer, they found that he had visited Ryan's Facebook before Ryan went missing. So I feel like it wouldn't be that weird if he had looked at it after Ryan went missing. Like, oh, who's this guy that everyone's talking about on the news and whatever and what happened to him? But he had told investigators that he had no idea who Ryan was. Because this is the brother, right? The brother, brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. So he was like, I'm not involved. I don't even know who that guy is. But then they straight up find that he had been on his Facebook at this point, the picture is getting clearer and clearer, and in November of 2012, police announced that Ryan's remains have been found. And they say that two men and one woman are facing charges, but they don't name suspects. Days later, Tina... Tina? Who is Tina? <laughs> it's their couple name. <laughs> it is their couple name. Oh my god. Tim, Sheena, and Will were charged with Ryan's murder. In March of 2016, the three stood trial. This is when all the information starts to come out. They wanted to get rid of Ryan and didn't want them involved in their life. Text messages between Sheena and Tim were read out loud in court. This is what the messages said. Marie's going to be Sheena and I'm going to be Tim. Can I trust Will to have this done without the cops turning up on the doorstep? You're not going to have any part if I decide this. I will respect your decision. Know that. But believe you'll only have to say yes once. So I think the courts or like during trial, the interpretation of this is basically Sheena saying, will your brother will be able to get rid of Ryan? I don't want you necessarily involved in this, but like, don't let it be stupid enough for the cops to show up at my door. Like, make sure it's done mm -hmm. correctly. And then Tim kind of says, yeah, like whatever you want. But just know that you'll only have to ask me once and then it'll be done. Like, it feels like he's trying to be like a tough guy. Like, you yeah. don't you don't have to say it twice. Yeah. Ugh. So icky. Who finds these people find each other? How do you find another sick person like that who would be it's like, like magnets? It just. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Then they exchanged these text messages the day before Ryan disappeared. What are you doing? Getting things ready. Scored the best spot at the pit. Oh, my God. Gross. Yeah, the next set of messages were sent the day Ryan disappeared. Give me the okay. Okay. So again, this is being interpreted like he's found the spot at the pit. Ryan was found in a burn barrel or gravel pit. And Tim at this point is like, give me the okay. Just tell me I can do it. And Sheena's going, okay. So it's it's spun like a lot in court that she was the puppet master behind all of it. And these two guys were just, I guess, doing what she wants. Which, I don't love anybody that much. <laughs> like, I don't... No. No. Sheena admits during the trial that this okay would be for them to make Ryan go away. So she doesn't kind of explicitly say, like... I said that they could kill him. That's not what she says. She says we just wanted to get rid of him. But like, girl. Gross. 
But then Sheena and Tim say that the plan was never to really kill Ryan, and they actually both blame Will, which is rude. Like, Will's a killer. Like, I, like, in my head, they're all murderers, but really, like, you're gonna, like, team up and then blame someone else. How are you gonna make someone go away if, and your plans is never, like, to kill them, but you're, I don't know, this just. It's just a mess. It's a mess and it's yes. not thought out. It's not that out. Like, yeah. like I put more thought about what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow than mm-hmm. they did about planning this murder. Literally. So they're basically saying, I don't know if if Sheena was ever actually there. I mean, I, I think she was obviously because there's blood found in her Jeep. But they're basically saying that they left Ryan at the gravel pit that night. And when they left, he was still alive. Whether they're kind of inferring that Will was still there with him or not, I'm not sure. The evidence, though, like, at this point, there's so much against them. There's even recorded conversations from all of them. There's conversations of Tim calling his phone provider, asking him how to swipe his phone clean. <laughs> He's like, Yo. hey, you get here on the crime beat episode. He's just like, hey, yeah, like, I'm just wondering how to, like, get rid of everything on my phone. Like, I just want to get rid of everything. Like, how do I, like, get rid of everything? What a joke. Factory reset my dog. Like, how is this that complicated? Like, and like, it's not even that. Like, it's maybe that doesn't get rid of everything, and that was uh, not a good thing to say. Like, as in the factory reset won't get rid of the things that he wants to get rid of. But at the same time, you know that those conversations are recorded, right? Like, with your phone providers when you call for customer support, you are just like leaving these breadcrumbs everywhere. There's like a call from Tim to Sheena, and Tim's like panicking because police had just came and had a search warrant. I think this to search the Jeep in the home, I think it was. There is videotaped conversations of Will talking to his mom about how he was not involved and how he didn't do anything. And it's just all sketch. I don't know if mom recorded the conversations or what happened with that, but it's you can hear them all in the Crime Beat episode. On April 20th, the jury finds all three of them guilty of first-degree murder. All three tried to appeal the conviction, but were dismissed. I wonder what their uh... relationship status is now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm wondering. I tried to figure out. I mean, yeah. And and I said this in the beginning of this episode, but I was like, oh, I'm just going to cut it out because it's kind of rude. But I'll just re-say it right now. Um, Ryan was way too cute for Sheena. Yeah. He obviously was just like a better person overall. Yes. I think it's fair to say that. So Megan, who is Ryan's sister, and Lorraine, who is, again, his mom, spoke to CBC after the sentencing hearing. And this is from the CBC article. In Ryan's death, he has exposed these three for who they really are, thus removing them from the life of an innocent young girl who deserved her father, and for that, her father is a hero. The courtroom was full of family members who applauded after Ryan's sister and mother read their statements. The piece of my heart that was meant for Ryan has been ripped out of me and fed to the flames. I will never forgive them. I cry. I hurt. I am a shell of my former self. I will never forgive them for what they did to us. All three accused were given the opportunity to speak. Sheena was the first to address the court. I'm truly sorry for the loss of Ryan. I see the pain in their faces. Through his lawyer, Tim expressed his deepest sympathies to Ryan's family and said he regrets any part he played in Ryan's loss. Will declined to comment. So, I mean, this is so tragic. This poor baby girl lost both of her parents. For what? She lost both of them. And I couldn't find any information. Do you remember at the beginning I told you that Sheena was pregnant? Oh, yeah. 
what happened to that child did they have that child i have no idea again like it's not like it's not necessarily information we need to know but my brain would just like that's just two children that are without parents really yes i would just like to like know that they're both okay and then yeah. i would just feel a lot better like they're step siblings but baby number two's parents killed baby number one's dad and it ruined everything call yeah. a therapist call a therapist because that is crazy so not much is known about Ryan's daughter's current whereabouts or the other baby, as I mentioned, but it seems like Ryan's daughter is being cared for by the Lane family. We really hope she's doing well, and, you know, our heart really goes out to the Lane family, and the tragic loss it was just so unnecessary. So unnecessary. I don't know why, but the fact that, like, he took her to Chuck E. Cheese, like, you know, like, the day of, and, like, he just wanted to be a good dad, that's And all. he was, yeah, and he was excited that she was mm -hmm. back in his life. And like bragging to his friend. I know. He Ugh. just, he really seems like a really sweet guy. And I just, I mean, this is just like a senseless act. Who does stuff like this? Who does well, stuff like this? That's the thing. The more we do like these episodes, I'm like, okay, I knew there were bad people in the world, but like what the actual, you know? Yeah. What exactly. is this? Yeah. So we're going to try to counteract all the bad with a donation. This week, we will be donating to Airdrie and District Victims Assistance Society. This is from their website. ADVAS is a nonprofit volunteer-based organization registered in 1992. They provide 24-hour crisis response and support to victims of crime and or tragedy in partnership with the RCMP. Their goal is to respect the victims they support by providing a compassionate response, emotional and practical assistance, information on victims' rights, and referrals necessary to help reduce the negative impact of victimization. So it was hard to pick an organization to donate to this week because this case kind of, you know, goes over Calgary as well as Airdrie and in Bicycle. So I am pretty sure that the Airdrie and District Victim Assistance Society covers Airdrie and surrounding areas. So that was kind of the idea behind donating to this organization today. So if you'd like to contribute to Airdrie and District Victims Assistance Society, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. Oh.